discussion about the bride-to-be's self-esteem. In virtually all cases, even before we have any kind of conversation, I can look at the girl who is getting married and I can say to her something like, so what are the problems you have with your self-esteem? And she's going to give me the list. Because, ladies, whether you want to admit it or not, the fact is, is that if I went to each one of you in the room and I said, do you have any problems with your self-image? Is there anything you'd like to change? Do you think poorly of yourself in some way? Almost every woman in the world, or in the world and in the room is going to say, yes, indeed, I've got something. And the fact is, the guys do too. We're just a lot more closed-mouthed about it. We don't sometimes show it quite as readily. But everybody suffers from some kind of self-esteem issue, it seems to me. And so, that's a big hindrance. A huge hindrance to our ability, I think, to be what God wants us to be. Sometimes we say, well, the reason that I'm as sinful as I am, is because of the ever-present nature of temptation. I just can't get away from it. Or we might say, well, it's because, you know, at root, I really don't have the desire to serve Christ as much as others do. Or we might say, you know, I've got all kinds of struggles in life, hardships. Kelly, if you knew my story, which many of your stories I do know, but if you knew my story, you'd understand why I'm the way I am. For some of us, it's our material success. And we just say, you know, I'm constantly distracted by all these material things around me. For some of us, it's just an inherent selfishness. It's probably my parents' fault. They allowed me to get away with too much, or they made me focus on myself too much. And so I can't get away from that. But I think that maybe at root, it has more to do with this universal self-esteem thing than anything else. And here's the basic problem. I would say that we often have difficulty recognizing what it is that God has done for us and who we are in Christ. And therefore, we just don't see ourselves the way that God does. And so the question for this morning is, sorry, there we go, Molly. We're in sync now. What is our condition in God through Christ? What is it? I think this is important. And the answer that we give to the question determines so much, I think, about the way that we live. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 in your Bibles. If you're in a pew Bible, you can turn to page 831. Page 831 in the Pew Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. And I want to go back, first of all, to verse 1, which we read last week. Because I think this is important. Philippians chapter 2, 1 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And then he goes on to talk about the results of these things being on our lives. And here's the point. We do have these things. God has given us the encouragement of being united together with Christ. 
God has given us the comfort of his love. God has given us fellowship with his spirit. We have received tenderness and compassion from him. And we just can't get all of that from God and have it not impact us in some way. And then on top of all of this, as Paul goes through the rest of these verses, he says that we have received the example of Christ. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but became a human being, sacrificing himself for us on the cross. For us! And if Christ gives himself for us on the cross, it means something about who we are. If we've received all these things from God, from Christ and his sacrifice, something is different. In fact, I would say this creates the context for our lives. Who am I? We think, well, I'm the fat one. Or I'm the bald one. Or I'm the one with the premature gray hair. Or I'm the one with all the wrinkles. Or I'm the one with post-nasal drip. I'm the one whose toes are too long. My second toe is longer than my big toe. If I were to take my shoes off, you could all see it. And I know you're hoping I will. My wife, however, does not have her second toe longer than her big toe. And so she misconceivedly thinks, is that such a word? No, that's not a word. She is wrong and thinks that that's the way it's supposed to be. She thinks that your second toe is supposed to be shorter than your big toe. Like, where does she get this idea? Well, we have all of these ideas about who we think we are based on things like that. As I've said many times before, the one thing I didn't like about losing my hair when I was quite young was that I knew for the rest of my life, people, if they were said, well, which one's Kelly? He's the bald one. That's what they would say the the rest of my life. You have said that to somebody. Somebody's walked in here and said, well, who's your preacher? Which one's Kelly? It's the bald guy over there. Nobody ever says, it's the handsome man standing next to that woman. (laughs) Nobody ever says that. It's the bald guy. What is that about? And so my self-esteem has been crushed by you. We have these things that we use to identify ourselves. And I would say that we need to do something else. We need to have the attitude that God has about us. And I'm not just talking about the some positive mental image. I'm not just talking about everybody thinking really positively about everything. You know, sometimes we hear from these people on television and they're such proponents of the positive mental attitude, of just thinking eternally optimistically about everything, which makes us dependent upon ourselves and dependent on our own successes and what we achieve or don't achieve. And that's not God's way. What allows me to have some kind of healthy self-esteem, if I have it at all, despite being follically challenged, is the fact that God has done something wonderful. We're the ones who have received this. Christ Jesus died so that we can live. You know, the stories of those who won the lottery, like some big lottery, like, you know, $49 million or whatever, Somebody wins some huge lottery. The stories of those people 
who end up absolutely miserable are legion. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, would I like to try it just once? See if I could do it. But those people oftentimes end up miserable. Everybody wants something from them. Everyone, even their best friends, end up trying to use them. And then they do foolish things with their money. So they can't figure out who's stupid. Are they stupid that they could lose so much money? Or are, they all, are their friends all manipulating them? Their new life context sometimes is now worse than it was before they won the lottery. And it's exactly the opposite for us as we stand in Christ. Our new circumstances through God in Christ set for us a fantastic worldview and self-perception. Our circumstances through God in Christ set the context for the verses, in fact, which we're about to read, which are all about what God has done for us and how God has blessed us in such rich ways that allow us to do and be more than we could ever dream. So I want you to look at verse 12. And I just want you to keep in mind what this builds upon. Like this builds right upon what the Paul's already told us God has done in verses 1 through 11. All the encouragement that we have received, all the comfort from his love, all those things that Christ has done for us, that goes before what we're about to read. And then you read in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And really, this lasts down through verse 18 or so. This living in light of what it is that God has done, this new condition in the Lord. Now, one thing that's clearly not decisive for how we live, is whether or not the Philippians have Paul there to hold their hands. Like he specifically says, whether it's in my absence, whether I'm right there with you, there's a certain way in which you should be living. And so things are not done. We don't live in a certain way just because of someone being right there alongside us. Do you remember what it was like the first time you tried to ride a bike? Or maybe some of you who are parents, do you remember what it was like the first time that you taught your own kids how to ride a bike? There is one thing that should not be done while someone is learning to ride the bike. You don't take your hand off of the bike if you're the one pushing it. You can run alongside, you've got the back of the saddle of the bicycle in your hand, and the kid is on the saddle, and you're pushing the bike along, and everything is going wonderful, but the moment that you take your hand off the bike, they're going to fall down. And if they don't fall down, there will at least be immediate panic. Because they thought that you had your hand there, and that's the only reason they could ride the bike. And when you take your hand away, they suddenly think, oh no, I'm done for. And they can't ride the bike 
any longer. They think that they need you. By the way, I was watching videos of this this week. And you know how you teach a kid to ride a bike? This is for your parents trying to think, how should I teach my kid how to ride a bike? Take the pedals off. And then lower the seat so that the feet are flat on the ground and let them push themselves around on their feet and then glide for as long as they need to. And then once they learn how to balance the bike, just lifting their feet a little bit off the ground, then you put the pedals back on. In fact, one parent said, put one pedal on at a time. Let them get used to running that one pedal and then put the other one on and eventually they can ride the bike. Genius. But I didn't think of that. So my kids all fell. They had bloody knees. Their self-esteem went down because their dad pulled his hand away. I obviously didn't love them enough. It was a disaster. Well, we can, in fact, live differently without having that one right there with us. We can, in fact, have great self-esteem, great attitudes because of God being with us. Paul wants the Philippians to let go of the bike or wants God to be there even when the bike is let go of and for them to ride it on their own. Well, when that happens, things change. Watch this. Rock and roll when you ride the bike. The kid gets it. He understands that he has the ability to do this. Now, he he may think he's doing it all on his own. But, of course, in so many other cases, and in our case as Christians, it's God who has done something among us and with us and for us. And because he has, we can approach everything in life differently because he's there. And so what is the key to our perception of who we are. It all has to do with what God has done. Now, that's, in light of what we just read, actually, at least on the surface, a bit bizarre. Look again at what verse 12 says, especially at the end. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you realize that seems to run exactly counter to everything that I just said? That it looks, at least on the surface, like there's supposed to be fear and trembling. And I thought that the context of that verse was that we have received encouragement from Christ. That we've received comfort from His love. That we have fellowship with the Spirit, that we've received tenderness and compassion. So how is it that right after us 
After we've seen all these things that God has done, Paul turns right around and says to us, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I think we have, in fact, been reading that verse wrongly. Because the whole context of this is not written to people who don't have salvation. It's written to people who are saved. We've received all of these things already. I'm not sure that I have to work out anything when it comes to my salvation. I thought that's something that Christ did for me. And so verse 12, at least the end of it, must mean something a lot different than I'm not saved and need to work this out. And here's what I think it means. I think it simply means complete and live out and be what it is that God has already done and what God has already made you. In fact, I think the end of verse 12 simply says, be who you are. Be what it is that he has made you. This is interesting. I want you to notice in verse 12 and 13, just read through it right now in your own Bibles, and I want you to notice all the times that Paul says you or your. Okay? Read through this right now. All the times Paul says you or your in those verses. And here's what I want to say about that word, you or your. Every time you just read it, even though it may not have come like this in the English, every time you read it, it was plural. It's always plural right there. I read it this morning again in Greek. It's not singular once. Not once. Which means that Paul is not saying to individual Christians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he is saying to the church collectively is be what God as a church has made you. Live out collectively the salvation that you have received. Now we are supposed to do this in some sense with fear and trembling. And what I think Paul simply means there is do this with a sense of humility. Which if you think about it is all what the first 11 verses are talking about. We've received all these things from Christ. Therefore, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Instead, think more highly of others first. Have this attitude which is in Christ Jesus, who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up to be a servant, ultimately death on the cross. Everything about the first 11 verses is about humility and about what God has done for us. So it wouldn't surprise me that verse 12 is any different than that. And when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it simply means be all that God has made you to be and then rely on Him as the one who's done this. I didn't create this situation. God did. And therefore, I am humble, accepting of what it is that God has done. Here's a similar passage. Romans 12, 3. 
For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to you, to each of you. And I would say that's exactly the attitude that we're supposed to have. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, is calling for sober judgment rather than arrogance as we reflect on who we are in Christ. He isn't telling Christians that they should constantly fear that their salvation is in jeopardy. Scared to death that maybe God at any moment may pull this back if I don't live well enough. And by the way, I'm not saying you can't lose your salvation I'm just saying that this idea that Christians are constantly wavering between lost and saved and lost and saved depending on how sinful I've been on any given day is not at all the attitude that God wants us to have about our salvation. He doesn't take his hand off the bike. And so we don't have to be worried about that. Looking behind constantly. Is he going to take his hand off the bike? Is he going to take his hand off the bike? Then we run into three. We just need to accept and recognize what God has done for us and then live like that, completing the picture of what it is that he has made us. He has made us something. Will we now be what he wants us to be? If you have any doubts about that, look at the next verse. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He is doing this. It doesn't say, and he may not. It says, God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He is accomplishing his good purpose in you. And he's responsible for it. We work out our salvation not by gaining our salvation, but by becoming what it is that God has made us. Yes, with humility. Yes, fearfully. Yes, recognizing that He's Lord. But you're allowing God to work out in you what He has already made you by giving you Christ. So this is not a matter of you you becoming something This is a matter of fulfilling and living out what you already are. Now, you know, recently we've been hearing a lot of news about the queen. Something happened to the queen recently. What was that? 90th birthday. The longest reigning monarch in the history of England. She's 90 years old. I'm predicting it won't last much longer. She might live, like her mother lived to 101 or something like that. She could live another 10 years. That's a possibility. I do not expect her to live another 20. If she lives another 20 years, I'll be shocked. And so will the rest of you. Okay? So the the queen eventually is going to die. And do you know what happens when the queen dies? Charles becomes king. You know, nobody wants to talk about Charles. Nobody does. You listen to the news, everybody talks about Will and Kate. Or everybody talks about Will and Kate's children. Or everybody talks about what Willie's little brother does. But nobody is ever talking about Charles. 
And they certainly aren't going to talk about Camilla. So nobody talks about that because nobody wants to actually admit that that's the situation. But one of these days, that guy, Charles, the one pushed off to the side, is going to become king. And do you know why nobody talks about Charles being king and no one's excited about that? It's because he hasn't acted like a king. They think he's acted like a a profligate or something. He hasn't acted like a king. But when she dies, he will be king. And what everybody wants to know is, is he going to be what he is? Is he going to become the king that he's supposed to finally be? Or is he going to keep acting like Charles? Because he will be king. And they all want him to not just be king in name only and even in status only. They want him to live like a king. Will he be kingly? In other words, will Charles become what he is? And that's how it is with us in Christ. God has made us who we are Will we live like those who are, in fact, God's children and received that kind of status in him? That's what Paul's trying to say in verses 12 and 13. Are we going to be what we are? We need to be. Well, he goes on. He tells us exactly what we are to be, what he wants us to be. Look at verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. You know, I can't help but think that in the back of Paul's mind that he still isn't thinking about you, Dean Syntyche. Those two women that we talked about last week from chapter 4, verse 2, they're not getting along. So he says in verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. And I think he wants to say, Judea, Syntyche, are you listening? Because you need to be getting along. You need to stop complaining and arguing. You need to have your character changed because God is working something within you. And I I admit this is not easy for us to do. There are times when I complain. I'd like to say that I just walk away when something goes other than how I want it to go. Somebody's doing something other than I want them to do. And I'd like to say that I can just walk away from that and swallow it and be perfectly fine and never complain. The problem is, is that I'm just like you. And sometimes you complain. In fact, sometimes you complain about me. Don't you? I know you do. But let me tell you, I complain about you. So you think to yourself, well, I can complain about the preacher and he doesn't know. I just do it in the silent of my own home, the privacy of my own home. But I find out. No, I don't really find out. I just assume. And then I talk about you in response. Because that's the way we are. We tend to complain and argue and belittle and put each other down. And God doesn't want us to do that, but that's just the way we are. 
And it seems to me like Paul is saying here, let's change that. And so when he says, do everything without complaining, just think of the ramifications of that. Do everything without complaining and arguing? No more talking underneath your breath after your wife has just said to you for the umpteenth time, pick up your socks? Bill's laughing back there. Bill's thinking, man, I picked up my socks so many times after she told me to. And every time he walked away grumbling, saying things underneath his breath, he knows that's true. He's naughty. Look at this. He knows it's true. He's the only man in the room with guts enough to admit it. But God wants us to do all things, it says, without grumbling, without complaining, without arguing. He says we can actually be pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. And Mana, it's like we talked about in class. No, we're not going to be perfect, but there is so much room for progress. And we can become more and more what God wants us to be. And he says specifically that when we act like this, as we're holding out the word of life, which, by the way, was exactly what Eudea and Syntyche were doing, Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 4 that they stood by him in the gospel. And so we're holding out the word of life, and we have a chance to do so, living in such a way that the rest of the world doesn't look at us and just mock us because of the way we live. Instead, they can respect us for who we are as we hold out the word of life. And so our not grumbling and not complaining and recognizing who we are in God in light of what God has done for us actually puts the gospel in a better light. Imagine what we could do in the world with the gospel if we just lived better lives. Wow. God could do so much. Well, when Paul finishes all of that, he eventually gets to talking about two great examples. You know, he's already given us the example of Jesus. He's already talked about himself being a, a drink offering poured out as a sacrifice to Christ. And then he gets into talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I just want you to notice a couple of sentences here, and then we'll, we'll finish this. Look at verse 20, where he's talking about Timothy. He's going to send Timothy to them because he wants to get a report. And he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Wow. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Like this is exactly what Paul has said over in verses 1 and 2 that he wants us to do. To look out for the interests and think more highly of those, others, rather than ourselves. Here he says specifically of Timothy, he looks out for his own, not for his own interests, but for for those others, it says. Clearly, a great example of the very thing that Paul's talking about. And then look down at uh, oh, verse 26 or so, and talking about Epaphroditus, he says, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. And the point is, is that this man has given his life for the gospel. He almost died. He came to bring good news from your church, from the Philippian church, to me, Paul, in prison, and he almost died in the process because he wants to do good things for God in response to the gospel. 
So we have these wonderful examples to kind of close out the picture of what it is that God wants us to be. We need, therefore, to have a different kind of attitude. And this attitude needs to bear itself out in our behavior. And it starts with us thinking rightly about who we are. We asked this question at the beginning. What is our condition in God through Christ? And if we think at all about the question and what it is that God has done, we can't help but have our own, I don't want to say self-esteem or self-image, our own perception and reality about ourselves in light of God has to be raised. God has made us someone different. And we really do have the power and ability through Christ to live differently than we do. And so how do you respond? What's your answer? How will you live this week differently, especially in your relationships, and I want to say even especially in that one relationship that is the most difficult relationship of all, and you know which it is for you. Who is that one person that you find it most difficult to get along with? And how will you relate to them differently because of where you stand saved in Christ? How will you complete and live out the salvation that you have received in Jesus in that relationship this week? Because God wants you to live differently. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live differently before you because of what you have done for us. Help us to perceive ourselves differently. We pray that the Spirit would empower us in a way that is so much different than us depending on ourselves. Help us to recognize the place that we stand before you as your child, the special privileged position we have of being able to work out, to fulfill, to live out the salvation that we've received in you. Help us to do that well this week, especially, God, in our relationships. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.